All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Tunes Mate number 66. I'm Mark. And I'm Ray. And Ray, this week, we had an opportunity to catch up again with Greg Renoff. And you remember, we had him back, I don't know how many episodes ago, but he did talk about his latest book back then. It was a book on Ted Templeman. This time, just wanted to talk with him and catch up. The last time we spoke was prior to Eddie Van Halen passing away. So I want to get his feelings on what he thinks the future of Van Halen is and really get his really closure around Van Halen. And it is interesting that we are now you know, encroaching almost three years since Eddie Van Halen has passed away. And according to Wolfgang Van Halen, David Lee Roth, Van Halen is done. And to me, that is fascinating when a band that had such a long stay doesn't continue. You've got all these groups, Foreigner, I think they have Mick Jones shows up every once in a while, but why is it some bands just end and why are other bands keep going? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's kind of, I don't know if it comes down to priorities, right? You know, uh, I think back to, it was been, gosh, more than a decade now, right? Or around a decade when REM hung it up. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, they probably could have kept going. I mean, they, they obviously they're all still around now, decade later. Uh, but then other bands like you, too, they, they, you know, they keep going and probably a matter of what do you want to do with your life? And some some bands, I think they some people, they just they're wired to think, you know, this is run its course and we're done. And others are like, let's see how far we can go with this. And if we can keep it going, you know, till we die or till we just can't play anymore. Um, you know, in the case of Van Halen, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, what, what is Van Halen if Eddie's not there, right? You know, I, I imagine that's part of the equation there. You know, they, they probably will do some send off stuff and stuff. And then it's really just not, it's kind of like Bon Jovi without John Bon Jovi, right? You know what? It's nothing, you know, so you can't, you know, what they're going to bring Richie Sambora back and he's going to lead everything and it's not Bon Jovi anymore, right? So I guess, I mean, that's what I think, you know, it's kind of a matter of what's the, the makeup of the band, who's the lead person, what, who, what defines the band and, and what do the people want? Yeah. So why don't we just jump into the interview when we come back, we'll wrap it up. We'll talk about tunes, mate, and we'll jump right into it. I have the honor of having Greg Renoff back on the podcast. How you doing, Greg? Hey, I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no problem. You know, Greg, just so everyone wants to know, Greg has three books out there. I know you did two on Van Halen, Van Halen Rising, and then Ted Templeman. But then you also had a book you did a while back called The Big Tent. And it's interesting, you have really turned the head, I know, definitely on Van Halen. And it sounds like your first book led you into the Van Halen, the two books. There's some relation there? Yeah, it's... uh a long story that I'll make very, very short, which is that I, I was uh, went to grad school, got a PhD in history, and along the way of getting a PhD in history, you have to do a dissertation. I did a dissertation that was actually on traveling circuses from the late 19th century, and I ended up turning that dissertation into a book after I got a job as a college professor. Yeah, there's definitely some correlation between arena rock and basically what was big top entertainment in the late 19th century, which is a similar type of idea of a traveling show that brought in a lot of people and was sort of meant to sort of, you know, set people's emotions and 
on fire sort of when they would see these shows, they'd walk out all, you know, excited about what they had just seen. So there's, there was some overlap there, but uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, not by design, it was just sort of how it all turned out for me. And uh, yeah. So yes, I, this is my, the Templeman book was my third book. Yes. Well, as I've said in the prior podcast, I know it's been a little bit since you've been on. And since then we had you know, Eddie Van Halen pass away. And there's been a lot of musicians that have said there's kind of been a void in the space. I know recently I saw Extreme release a new single and said, you know, Nuno said, you know, I, I was inspired by Eddie Van Halen, uh-huh. wanted to kind of fill his void. And if you listen to the guitar solo, it kind of, you know, blows the doors off of things. So how has, you know, Eddie Van Halen's passing affected you? Well, I, I think, you know, beyond the, the sort of finality of it all, which is kind of a cliche, you know, to me, I'd sort of, over the years leading up to Eddie's death, which no, I don't think anyone really knew who was in sort of the, the general public knew how sick he was. You know, I'd sort of kind of assumed that they were not going to really do anything again. And I you know, thought it was possible, but it seemed like there'd been a lot of years since they had toured and Roth had sort of said a couple of things publicly that made it seem like Eddie was struggling with some health issues. And you just kind of figured like, well, maybe he was just, they were just done. The brothers were done and wanted to just sort of wind it down. So, you know, then when he passes, you sort of, it, it changes the finality altogether where it's like, well, you know, there's never going to be a Van Halen again. And then um, this person who I've spent you know, since my you know, early teenage years, just obsessed with to one degree or another, just being a big fan and obviously and became a, an academic slash research slash writing issue for me and became very important to me in terms of that uh, project, especially Van Halen rising. It's, um, you know, it's kind of, it sort of hits me differently on different days, you know, and some days it's just, uh, you know, it's, he died at 60, I think, if I remember correctly, God, I should know 65, I think, or, you know, yeah. And so, you know, that's a, you know, for today's world, that's a relatively short life. You know, most people make it into their seventies or into their eighties, even it's just, um, you know, especially knowing that he was, he was really quite unwell for the last few years of his life. It seemed like when he was sort of, you know, off people's radar just because he wasn't in public as he was going through chemo or whatever. It's just, you know, it's a tremendously, you know, I don't mean sad is the wrong word to say in some ways it's the right word, but the wrong word. It's just, just you know, it's just, there was so much more I would have loved to hear from Eddie, more, you know, interviews if he had ever done a book or had ever done a documentary. I mean, there's all these things like, you know, I think about that, like they never did a documentary. They never did a, Eddie never did a book. You know, there's definitely, he, he did the Smithsonian interview, obviously, and he did some other things, but it would have been nice to have more sort of time for him to reflect on what he accomplished in more of a holistic way, I guess, than what, you know, some mm-hmm. of the stuff, obviously he did interviews with guitar magazines and, you know, people like Chris Gill do great jobs. And when they would sit down with Ed and talk about his guitars and what they were up to with the new EVH gear stuff, but to sort of have like a, you know, a final statement on his reflection on what he accomplished would have been from him would have been nice, but you know, that's, that's, uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of uh, the door shut on that. I think there's very little, again, I have no insight in, into this beyond my own speculation as a person who watches the sort of the moves inside the, the world of Van Halen from, you know, news. It seems unlikely that there'll ever be a, an Eddie Van Halen tribute. And uh, yeah, it's just a sort of the, that's, it's now it's sort of a thing of the past, you know, which is kind of hard to believe because it was always, you know, like for you, I'm sure a part of my life since I was 14 or whatever, basically like, uh, you know, one, one degree or another, that was it. Yeah, it was just a staple. I was just listening, believe it or not, to Van Halen 3 today, which is one of those albums I just kind of break out. But you know, recently, you know, Wolfgang has come out and said that, you know, he played at the Taylor Hawkins tribute and said, that's the that's the Van Halen tribute that's going to happen. 
And then I recently saw, and we mentioned this at the beginning before we started recording about the Steve Rosen book that's out there that's recounting some of Eddie Van Halen. And it just started making me think, it's like, why did Eddie do this? Why did Eddie do that? And I think some of that book touches on that. But then I just started thinking about what are all the things? I mean, you've studied Van Halen implicitly, and I thought it would be interesting to kind of go down that road and try to unravel some of these things that Eddie or even Alex, because, you know, Alex is right now, he's the one that's running everything right now. Wow. I mean, I think, you know, I think, um, you know, Steve's book came out about what six months ago. And, you know, that it, the thing that I would say about Steve and his book is that Steve was a huge inspiration to me as a kid. I read every single issue of Guitar World magazine that had an interview with Eddie Van Halen in it from the time I was, what, 1984, 1985, when I started to get by that magazine. And I read every word over and over again. And so, um, you know, the story of Steve and Eddie, Steve's told the story in his book and tells it better than anybody. But basically, there was supposed to be a, there was an agreement to do a book that Eddie was going to let Steve tell his life story up to that point. And then there was a kind of a, I don't want to know if the falling out the right word, but basically the book didn't happen. Eddie sort of stepped back from it and then sort of kind of kicked the can down the road and it never ever, ever happened. Yeah, that was, you know, I think I can't speak for Steve, but I think it was probably a lot of closure for him to be able to do that book because it was something that I think he had invested enormous energy into getting to know Eddie and, and committing to do deep dive into his life. So yeah, that that's out. And there's been you know there's been a number of, of obviously a number of books that have come out, you know. And I just think, like I said earlier, I think I would love to be able to hear Eddie and Alex, which we can't, you know, really sit down for like again like. I don't know, a documentary might be the wrong way, sure, documentary, whatever you want to call it, like actually like sit down and like kind of go through their entire life from their perspective, not from my, you know, my filter on it or Steve's filter on it or anybody else who's written a book on on Van Halen to kind of to do that. It was basically those guys and what they thought. And fortunately, that's that opportunity is now not possible. You know, maybe Alex will do something like that someday. Maybe he'll sit for, a, you know, I'd really like to hear him, you know, sit down for an extensive long interview again not just sort of like you kind of like scratch the surface but like go through everything i mean i would i would like to hear that you know what was it like for those guys as teenagers living in that small house in las lunas and you know not the cliche stuff that we you know kind of like, i mean in other words not the sort of short answer stuff but actually like you know really hear what was that when those guys really started gigging and like from their perspective you know the whole thing orders when they first got to play at a stadium and you know what it was like when they um from their Alex's perspective about like what happened when they fired Roth, like all that stuff that, you know, that at this point he's in his seventies, he might not care to talk about. It might be all like, I don't, you know, that's, I don't care about that. Obviously it's mean to care to talk publicly about it. I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, um, I'm a bigger fan than anybody. It's pretty clear that Alex Van Halen doesn't exactly like enjoy, you know, the, 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 uh, the interview process or that. I mean, I, just, I get the impression that's not his thing. So we might never hear that, but I guess that's what would be, um, you know, for me, I would like to see happen is one of the, you know, again, I just say it as Alex now, but to kind of get his his perspective on that, I think we've gotten Roth's perspective from his book and Roth has talked a lot about their early days and, you know, kind of different chapters of the career, but I don't think we've ever gotten that from the brothers, right? We never got that. We never got like, whoa, what did you guys think when you, you know, did your fourth record and that was fair warning, that was a darker record and it didn't sell as well as some of the other records. What did you guys think inside the band and what was like, what was their perspective on the relationship with their bandmates, the producer, like the stuff that, you know, obviously we would like to hear like from Alex about what the brothers take on all that was since they were so 
you know, they were the axis of the band, obviously. Yeah. And you mentioned Alex and I was thinking about this the other day because Alex is now Wolfgang has said Alex is in charge. And I'm wondering, is Alex, is he going off of some type of notation that Eddie had left? Because I'm wondering why they're starting with the live album right here, right now as the first Hagar remaster. Is, right, right. Is there, is there some thought process behind that? I, look, it's, you know, this is just, <laughs> this is where people can just go. This is just some guy speculating. Yeah, I'm a guy who just wrote a couple books and I am speculating. So I, I, I don't know. I, my take on it from looking at that logically would be like either those tapes were in the best shape maybe and needed the least work. I, again, I doubt that's the reason. Maybe this, this is the, in other words, this is the easiest way to get, a, get one of these albums out. So that's possible. I think that's probably not the reason. I think it's also probably likely that they would like to build an excitement. In other words, instead of we're remastering 5150, and then you have to get to get to right here, right now, which is probably of the Hagar releases, probably the least popular in terms of people knowing what it is, right? You sort of build that. So maybe they're going to do, you know, maybe then they do balance next and then they do OUA one, two, and then they do fuck. And then they do 5150 again. I don't know. That's, those are the only two things I could possibly think about that there was maybe this was the, the you know the the easiest way from point A to point B was to start with this one for some reason with the tapes I doubt that you know or maybe that was the least again you, I can imagine too I'm just making it up maybe there was there was still it's fine hard to believe but maybe there's still some debate among Alex and Sammy about releasing stuff again this is complete speculation on my part maybe you know well, we better hold off on. 5150 and OU812. Again, I don't think that's true. I'm just here. I'm just like spinning ideas. I don't think I, I find that unlikely because I would imagine like mm -hmm. I think Sammy's probably all in on like releasing everything. That seems to be the the uh, everything I've read from his comments on Instagram and other things that he's you know he's he wants it all to be out. Obviously, he should. And so I find that unlikely as well that there was any sort of stumbling block uh, between the two of them, unless Alex has some reason why he would want to not release the studio records, but. Yeah, I think it seems clear to me that from what I read from the Rhino press release and from what I would say I believe is going to happen is that they're all going to, all those albums are going to come, you know, will there be bonus tracks on the other records? I don't, you know, again, are they going to tack on like the Dreams single edit on 5150? Because that's really would be the, the thing would be like the, that would be to me, seem to be the obvious thing to tack on. The other thing to think about is that, you know, anytime there's a, a live album that's done or a live video there was there was 24 track i assumed or some 24 track or 16 track tape run at new haven to do the 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 um the famous new haven live without a net so in other words obviously they shot the video but there's multi-track audio which we have to assume is not lost is probably sitting at 5150 in boxes there that they could actually mix like really mix and make into a live album they probably did a mix for tv obviously they did like a a TV mix, which may not be the same as you'd want to do for like a stereo system or like for, you know, whatever, for releases a record, you could do that. You could do like, a new, you know, the, the live without a net record. Again, that'd be something they could do. Yeah, they could do that. But there's so much stuff, um, you know, kind of beyond that, which we can't even, you know, we don't have time to get into like sort of the, the third, fourth, fifth tier stuff that people don't know about, but might be sitting up there. But that would be the things I would think that maybe could also, you know, could be uh, on the table. The stuff that they did, the Japan, right? They did that Japanese pay-per-view thing. You know, there could be multi-track tapes for that sitting around. Maybe they would put that out as well. I mean, at this point, 
I can only speak from my perspective and looking at it, and I'm sure perspective of a lot of fans, people want to buy this stuff. It's sitting and collecting dust at 5150. It was good enough to put out in 1989 or 88 or 91, whatever the year is. I don't really see a reason not to put it out in a format that people would enjoy and be able to, instead of just watching it for you on YouTube. Because that's the thing too. It's like, <laughs> we can all, you know, like every time it plays on YouTube, I, I understand the band makes money, uh, you know, the, the, the stakeholders who have the publishing and whatever else they make money off of that. But, um, you know, you put that on a, on a record and, you know, if it can, if, it, if it's suitable for release on a record or, or a digital download or God knows, maybe even a CD, I don't see why that wouldn't be done. So then you're getting a very long-winded answer as usual. You got to just cut me off. <laughs> well, I'm thinking here, it's interesting. I think about 5150 and this idea you're going to start backwards. But I mean, in 5150, it always blew my mind. I mean, they had the song, The Inside, and I used to crank that thing. I like the bass riff and, you know, everything, all the little side banter. Right. But then recently, as you said, I mean, there's been proof that I Want Action, which was another song that kind of reminds me of Good Enough. Right. Same riff. So I can see that being released there. Why do you think, you know, Eddie, he chose the inside over our, I want action. Do you think that was more of a, a decision from the, the record company? That's a good question. I mean, the, the, it sounds like the, you know, the thing that's out there that's kicking around, I believe is like a, you know, it's not demos. It's almost like, was like a rough, it was like a, like a, mm -hmm. a work, like a work tape, basically like, here's, here's a kind of a snapshot of where things are with the tracks. Like some of the vocals you can hear are the same that Sammy does. And some are a little bit different. Like he may have sung things again, you know? And so I wonder if they just felt the song didn't really go anywhere. I mean, I don't think it's like a particularly, I mean, it's fine. It's a Van Halen song. It's a good, it's a good song, yeah. but I don't think it's a particular like, hidden treasure where it's like, oh, you know, you guys are idiots for leaving that off the record. Now the inside, you know, I always thought that was sort of a, you know, whatever they were playing around with the, um, I can't even remember the name of the machine. There was a machine that they, this God, the machine that made the, the, those, those sampled noises they had, you know, that was a kind of a famous thing at the time that people were using, you know, and I, I and I wonder also if it was just sort of, it captured the whole, you know, sort of they wanted to bust Ross ball. I would, you know, obviously a lot of that stuff I thought was a shot at Roth and that was part of like, well, yeah, we're going to put this on. We're going to, because we're going to, take a shot at Roth, you know, like, you know, it's not who you are, it's how you dress and all that stuff. I always thought was like, kind of a, like, was actually meant to be like their uh, commentary on the, the breakup in some way. So, mm -hmm. you know, and look, I, I, I think it's very clear. There was a lot of substances going on. <laughs> there was like a lot of not sober people involved with the making of that record. And so, you know, yes. could it have been like, F it, we're going to use the inside instead of this. And it wasn't like the most logical decision but again i think you know i think you know ultimately i want some action it's not like i don't think if that was on 5150 it would make the album better i mean there certainly are songs that like i could imagine you know there were some like basically some of the leftovers from some of the zeppelin albums that jimmy page put out that i was like that's a pretty damn good like you know like hey hey what can i do like obviously that could have been mm -hmm. like that could have been on they, i know they put it out at the b-side of a single or whatever they put it out as a single zeppelin did but like that could have been on Zeppelin three and probably in retrospect, I'm like, eh, I probably could have, you know, they probably could have put that on instead of Tangerine. Actually. I think that's a better song than Tangerine. You know what I mean? Like, but I don't think I want some action. Like you'd be like, it's so great. Like how could they have left it off? Mm -hmm. it, it was a song that was strong, but it was still working. And you mentioned something interesting. I was thinking about this. We we're talking about Alex and then we talked about Eddie. And then I was thinking about the inside and then that, that bass riff. And one thing that you said in the 10 Templemen was there's a couple things. I mean, one, there was 
that at one point, and I know this has been talked about before, but I'm going to lead to my next point about this is that, you know, oh, you know, Tetapple is like, maybe we need to bring Sammy in. And, you know, maybe Dave was struggling on the vocals and ultimately they stuck with Dave and, you know, they went for the albums. But one thing that came out with the Steve Rosen interviews that I wondered if Ted ever mentioned, Steve Rosen was saying it was early on that Eddie kept saying, maybe we need to replace Mike Anthony. And is it true that Eddie wanted to replace Mike Anthony? I know Mark Stone, they replaced him with Mike Anthony, with Billy Sheehan. Was was there ever any discussion with Ted about Mike Anthony in in particular? Uh, You know, I want to be like totally transparent with people. I think that there's always this sort of sense, like there's like something being held back by people who like, Oh, well, you know, Greg didn't talk enough about like what Ted really thought about this. Some of the Mm -hmm. stuff in the book, like on that note, Ted always said that Mike was incredible in the studio, that he has scoffed at the idea that, that, you know, in the, the five albums, particularly that were done at Amigo Studios or Sunset Sound that Mike didn't play everything to Ted's memory. And that Mike always was a very esteemed member of Van Halen in Ted's eyes. Now that said, I never have heard Ted ever reference anything about that to me. Now, does that mean he's, he could have forgotten? I guess it's possible. But, you know, I think if that, that had happened and it was a real thing, he would have said like, Oh, those guys wanted to replace Mike. I couldn't believe that. I think that's, I can imagine Ted saying that something like those guys were crazy. Like the nicest, you know, solid guy who would come in and play his parts, didn't cause any problems. and was, was great. I mean, I imagine Ted saying something like that. He didn't say that to me just to be clear, but like, I can imagine Ted saying he would, in other words, if that had been a thing that was ever like on his radar in a real way. And again, I, I think he would, even if it was like talked about to him now, I'm not saying it didn't, it didn't happen. I'm not saying that what Steve, has in his book is inaccurate. I believe that it was talked about. I believe the like he was reporting it correctly. The brothers and whatever else talked about that. But you know, it's all it's also possible too that like Ted was never privy to it because those guys never got to that point where they would ever want to talk to Ted because they probably knew Ted would have been like, "You guys are what are you guys doing? Like, why would you try to replace the most reliable, <laughs> stable guy in the band?" Basically, like you, know, you guys are all like you know you guys all have your other whatever problems getting along like why would you replace this guy who's like basically just there to like whatever do the best he can in theory i know you know whatever so i yeah you know i've asked ted about a lot of stuff with mike and he never ever once volunteered anything like that yeah well mike anthony i mean there's just so much good to say about everything he's ever done for that group and gone on to so and he's you know supposedly supposed to be working with some new folks uh, I saw reported recently going to be forming another band. And I was like, go Mike. Cause he's just has so much to offer. And the one thing I started thinking about too, was that some of the songs back in, you know, probably maybe some of the backyard days seem to end up on another kind of truth. Right. Was there a reason why when in 2012, when they decided to do the, you know, going back with Roth was, did, was Eddie just thinking, let's try to rekindle that same sound? Was was that why they decided to choose a bunch of those songs and just redo them again? And do you think it was part of Wolfgang's grand idea? Or how did that shape that way, do you think? I, and I could be misremembering. I, my recollection of going back to thinking about when I heard the interviews that Wolf and Ed gave 
because Roth never really talked about like the genesis of the record, like how did that record come together? And he just would kind of do a spiel, like kind of salesmanship on the record and whatever he, whatever phrases and catch lines he would say about the songs or whatever, um, you know, like lightning in a bottle or whatever, but he never would actually like explain what happened. You know, my recollection is that Wolfgang said that, that they ended up using those songs as a starting point to kind of, you know, he had to like kind of motivate his father to write again. He was like, well, okay, like you don't think you can write 10 songs or, or, you, or you don't feel inspired to write 10 songs. Not that he couldn't write them, but he could, you don't feel inspired to write 10 new songs. Why don't we use all the stuff you didn't use on the, on the, the first, the Van Halen demo that was done in 77 at Sunset Sound. So that's my recollection was that was sort of like the starting point, like Wolf looking, listening through that material and saying, there's so much good stuff here. Why don't we recycle it? And that's, you know, that's kind of the wrong word, but basically, why don't we just go upon what's there? And again, I would dare say that it's probably accurate that there was, you know, that even though the band had reunited, whatever the vibe was in 1978 in terms of songwriting between Roth and Ed and maybe Roth, Ed and Al was not going to be there anymore. I'm not saying they weren't capable of writing together, but like, you know, they weren't going to like go in a basement together. Like clearly that wasn't going to happen. Those guys were going to be like, oh, we're going to go in Dave's basement and write songs for two weeks and figure out, you know, so it was much more of like, I think this, this allowed for the, you know, allowed them to be halfway to the finish line. In other words, to have this sort of the, the instrumental stuff already set up, the already vocal melodies and then Roth to his credit, I mean, did, redid the lyrics and, I, you know, in most cases and redid the vocal melodies to a large degree and kind of reworked the songs. But, um, that's my, you know, that's wh where I would come down on all of that. I just think it was, you know, part of it was just like the, the whatever the, the, the relationship was in 2012, it certainly wasn't going to be the same as it was in 1979. Right. And sort of, it's a big ask. It's a big ask to be like, Oh, you guys are all multimillionaires. <laughs> Go back and try to pretend like trying to write songs to make your first record or second record. And you, you know, you're, you're still not made it, made it all the way and just mm -hmm. get that, you know, so it's a pretty big ask for guys who are like, you know, have multiple houses and cars and I'm not taking a shot at anybody, but it's like, it's, you know, to kind of have that, that sort of like drive to do it. Yeah. It's probably a lot easier to be like, you know what, we have these, this, these great songs we didn't use. We have this great riffs. We have these great songs. Let's just do this. And then we can sort of work on it that way rather than sort of being like, do I really want to put out a, you know, put out a record that is not going to make a ton of money for us and maybe, you know, it'll be just a lot of frustration trying to work with people. Yeah, or just a lot of frustration trying to work with people. What's interesting is that I, I did see later when they interviewed Wolf about that album. He said, yeah, we probably should have went with, you know, She's the Woman instead of Tattoo. And, you know, well, I mean, right. hey, 2020 hindsight. But I was thinking about something that you had written in, I think it was uh, Van Halen Rising. You talked about that when... Eddie was playing live. They originally had a keyboard player and I was doing some digging around recently. And I realized that they actually had, especially during the, the, you know, most of the Hagar songs had a keyboard. So they had hired Alan Fitzgerald. He was the keyboardist from night Ranger to play during mm -hmm. the live shows. And I, I kept thinking, I always wonder, I always thought it was maybe a, you know, a dat tape or something. Somebody was playing somewhere, but then, I was like, oh, so they kind of had like a Wizard of Oz, you know, keyboard player like Aerosmith and some of the other people do. Curtain, Ozzy yeah. Osbourne had one. Was that something that you think Eddie was 
you know, early in the days, because they had a keyboard player on stage during the early days, he just said, well, let's just put them behind stage. They're really not part of the band, but I still want a live keyboardist in case I want to go off on a solo or something. Is is that why he had a live keyboard? No, I mean, I think probably they figured, you know, in for the the Fitzgerald thing, I think probably they just figured it was easier to have a live keyboard player to make everything work smoothly if there's a, you know, the, Look, we saw that what happened in what 2000 and the 2007 when the, the the keyboard was programmed wrong, it was programmed to the wrong key or something like that for jump, and it was impossible. Like Eddie's like smashing his guitar into the stage, like you could, you literally couldn't. It was like so embarrassing for the band because like you couldn't play to it, right? It was a, so I, I don't know that for for sure, but I suspect that was part of it. They just figured, look, I have a live guy behind the keyboard, you know he's going to be able to play with us and be able to make sure everything kind of runs smoothly. And if there is a glitch, he's going to be able to like fill in the holes and then react like a human being rather than just like a machine that's kind of like plotting forth. You know, the the keyboard player in the early days, you know, that was, I think a product of like the, the, of the times in terms of they were playing Santana, they were playing deep purple. They were playing a lot of stuff. They were playing zombies. They were, they were playing grand Mm -hmm. funk, which had keyboards. They were playing a lot of music that had keyboards in it. And I can think about like, especially how popular Deep Purple was at the time. And that was sort of like a, you know, obviously going to be a staple. They probably played three or four or five Deep Purple songs and they'd play a two hour show. You know, that was probably what that was. That was the, uh, was that, you know, but as, as time went on after they, they, they dumped the keyboard player, you know, it was pretty clear that I think to Roth, at least that they could like make it up with the, with the harmonies. The Roth comes in and they start really working on the harmonies more. That was sort of the, well, we, you know, we don't have a keyboard player anymore kind of to play the those chords over a chorus, the background chorus as we're playing. Now we're going to have a, we're going to sing the, the uh, sing the parts, which is, of course, the this kind of the staple of the Van Halen sound, the, the patented Van Halen sound is those background vocals. Yeah. And what's interesting is I know there was something recently, there was something, you know, Sammy said, came back and he's like, yeah, you know, it's like people say, I don't know, the word was wimpy or what the, what, I can't remember the, the phrase Sammy used, but he said, you know, why did, you know, he's like, I took the songs, the music that Eddie gave me and I created songs out of them. Right. But he was criticized by that. And <laughs> earlier on, I know Roth wasn't a big fan of keyboards, but he, what was it? Uh, not in the cradle of rock that wasn't the first keyboard was it wasn't there one before that no i think that was the first one they did keyboards on i mean there's but there's there's like yeah there's a number there's a there's a couple on diver down there's a couple on uh, fair warning yeah there's fair right there's actually yeah there's actually a lot more keyboards on on van halen songs than people recognize realize because it sounds like a guitar but you know sammy was criticized over that and it's interesting how you know keyboards were were there and eddie was figuring out some way to, to weave it in Right. And that's what's interesting to me is the sound. Eddie's sound, you know, changed over these time periods. And I mm-hmm. you know we were kind of keying in that a little bit. And there were some dark periods with Roth, and there were some dark periods with Hagar. I, they only did one album with Sharon, so I don't, there's not much there to pick from. But when you look at it, is most individuals are they approaching Eddie's music by the lead singer or are they approaching it by periods? You look at artists like Van Gogh and oh, they had a dark. Well, I, had a I think like I think it's interesting because I think there is some, there is some people who probably don't 
really lock in on the fact, I mean, like super casual rock fans who probably don't like really lock in on the fact that like there were two singers like as, as much. Like there's some like segment of that. It's a very small segment, right? I don't know, like my mom probably, she does know the difference. But like if I played a Van Halen, if I played, you know, good enough and I played uh, somebody get me a doctor like back to back, I'm not sure she's going to easily like be able to like differentiate mm-hmm. right off the bat. Like, oh, that's she might, she probably can. But, but you know, like most people who are significantly more, you know, are serious rock fans or like regular rock fans recognize it. So there's that whole thing. So there's like some segment of people who probably like mm-hmm. Van Halen's Van Halen. Like, oh, did David Coverdale sing a Deep Purple? I don't even know. There's some guy who screams, right? There's like they all those guys scream, right? Like, you don't like, you know, it's all Black Sabbath to me. There's some people. Then there's the people who are like, yes, who like are like, you know, kind of like take it all for face value. Then there's the people who, you know, are younger than um, I'm. So I'm uh, a class of 87 who maybe were like class of 92 or class of 93, who it's like their whole consciousness was the Hagar stuff. Like, it's not that they don't like know what the raw stuff is, but like to them, it's like, the, my, you know, my first album was 5150 and my first album was OUA12. And those are the ones that I got into. And so there's some people who like, yeah, like see it through that prism, like, you know, rather than sort of the older, I'm not that much old, you know, older than that but like you know don't have the 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 roth era as their their starting point but yeah i think i think the average but i think the the average person who is a fan of van halen whether they're like you know have four or five albums or they're like a super fan see it as errors by singer and i think that's that's actually like yeah i i I find i find it very unlikely that, that that there's there's very many people are going to be like well you know, this is the, you know, guitar players might be like, well, the first three Van Halen records, the first two Van Halen records have a certain, there's a certain chapter in Eddie's history. And then, the, you know, there's, there's 1984, which is in 5150, which go together. And then there's, you know, the foreign lawful carnal knowledge is kind of a chapter of his own. Like you can kind of look, look through that and think it that way. But yeah, I think, I think, you know, I'd say more, vastly more people are going to look at through singers than anything else. Makes sense couple more questions for you here greg so thinking about eddie and randy rhodes yeah the randy rhodes what i did the van halen rising book i spoke to a lot of people who were around in 76 77 guitar players fans who were going to see bands at that time i mean i think the thing that people need to understand is like in 76 you know uh 77 i mean quiet riot was you know, nowhere near the band that Van Halen was in 77. I mean, I think that, that the one thing is that clearly the songs were a lot better. The Van Halen songs were a lot better. Um, and they had just had much more popularity. I mean, even before they got signed, I think it's, you know, my opinion is based on what I know is it's revisionist history to sort of be like, they were like neck and neck. I don't think that's accurate. In terms of the Randy Eddie thing, you know, look, they played together one time that that I know about or maybe maybe more than once once maybe in Hollywood at a place called the Cabaret but certainly they together at that sh- that show at Glendale College I mean I you know I I think that I don't think that there were like all of this like you know Eddie hated Randy or Randy hated Eddie I mean I think it was much more like Eddie was a guy who was sort of lapping everybody i mean again that's not obviously that's not a shot of randy i mean randy's an amazing guitar player but there were like so many guys on the scene who would like all tell you that eddie was the guy eddie was the guy you know like george lynch will tell you that that tracy 
G, who was later in Dio, who was a little bit younger, but saw these guys, will tell you that Eddie was the guy. There's Rusty Anderson, who was an amazing guitar player. And like, all, you know, basically all the people I spoke to who were around then are all going to kind of be like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, there were other guys who were really, really good. But the, in terms of the, the songwriting, the chops, the sound, the whole look, the vibe, the way he moved on stage, it was Eddie. So, I mean, I think it's kind of like, it's kind of like you know, to have a real rivalry. And again, I'm not trying, it's probably sound like I'm knocking Randy, but I just think the band, their bands weren't close like they weren't close van halen was playing the whiskey you know they're playing the whiskey on the strip van halen was was playing in front of 2500 people at the passing of civic i mean they were there were um they just had a bigger following now over you know obviously quite right went on to do the records with um cbs japan whatever it was and they, they built a good following for themselves but i think you know in 77 you know 76 77 especially it was like it was like van halen was was kind of way ahead of them. And so yeah. I'm a fan of, look, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, of the Randy Ozzy stuff. And yeah. he was obviously a great guitar player. And, but yeah, I mean, I think there were like, if George Lynch is telling you like Eddie's the guy, I mean, I think, you know, what? I think that's like, I think it's pretty, you know, Randy's dead. So Randy can't speak for himself, but like, you know, guys like that who are like Rusty Anderson, you know, are kind of going like, wow, you know, Eddie was amazing. It's kind of clear that, you know, Eddie was the guy. It just was so interesting. You know, once, people get introduced into the rock hall there seems to be things that kind of come out of the cellar there there eddie was asked in i think going up an escalator in tmz someone said hey that uh that tape in the back to the future that was you right and he said yes did you get an indication because obviously that was in between the 5150 so it was you know that's probably from some former session has there ever been any indication of what that was that intro was for? I think it's I think somebody I think I read someone who sort of like nailed it down. I think it was like from one of the you know, it was from the wildlife. I think that's what it was. I think it was like just basically one of those So when Don Landy and Eddie did the wildlife, they had um a screener, I guess you'd call it of the movie, and they you know, I imagine they had it on a TV in fifty one fifty and like they had all these notes going like kid jumps out the window and goes and runs in the car. And so they needed some fast, like, you know, and the, the musical, or whoever it was, the musical coordinator for the movie was probably like, we'd like something fast paced here. And he's like, I have an idea. And they, they had talked, I know they had talked to Cameron Crowe. It was probably like, you know, all these different little segments. So I got the, my recollection is somebody kind of had, um, made clear that that piece of music was one of the things like, oh, again, there's some scene in the movie where somebody's like, you know, running somewhere and they're going to have to play some fast paced music. That was a, a clip for the wildlife that either didn't get used or they recycled for that. That's what I remember my memory. Yeah. I remember they released all those a while ago, all those tracks. I mean, there was, there was, a, they weren't clean because they were in the movie. So for a while there was little clips you can do right now. Well, right. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm going to do my due diligence that I always do is like, I really do hope that someday whoever's make calling the shots on that stuff, if somebody says like, we should put it out on Eddie Van Halen soundtrack release right okay maybe we're you know we, there's some stuff like from the the songs that we're not sure like old again old van halen songs maybe there's a debate maybe like roth doesn't want to put something on that and alex does again i'm just making it up i have no idea but you know like it would be cool to hear all of the wildlife stuff like you i, I am very confident that there was again not like tons of songs left over but there would be like pieces of music maybe it's like a 45 second piece of eddie playing guitar maybe it's a 45 second piece of eddie playing keyboards and playing bass or something that was done for wildlife that maybe either is in the movie and we can't really hear it because it's overcome with audio or it's it's something they didn't do 
you know, and then there's the seduction of Gina, which is what was done for the um, the Valerie TV movie. I mean, it would be cool to have something where you could be like, oh, listen, this is like a totally different side of Eddie Van Halen, you know, of him as a as a guy who is working on these these film projects. That would be that would be cool, right? It'd be something to kind of uh, broaden out the average person's perspective on what Eddie Van Halen accomplished during his life. Yeah, he's the guy who did great guitar solos and wrote Jump. Oh, I didn't know he did music for movies. This is kind of interesting. And again, it's not going to be a big seller. It's not going to make anybody a ton of money, probably. But it would be, you know, kind of like as a let's let's pay tribute to what this guy dedicated his life to, which was like you know spending twenty four seven in a recording studio for weeks at a time to do this music. It would be cool to hear that stuff. Yeah, I I totally agree. <laughs> I'd I'd line up to do it. So the last question for you here: We talked about it briefly, and obviously there's been some interviews with Gary Sharon talking about they plan on doing a next album. There's a few tracks out there. Gary has always said that he thought if they went out and toured, probably the album and Van Halen 3 would have continued on longer. But I've heard something that someone said that Eddie really kind of asked Gary to sing like Sammy. And if you, you listen to that without you, that take is the first take. I think they said they went back and tried to record it again and they couldn't get it. Did Eddie ask Gary to sing like Sammy on Van Halen 3? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was always my takeaway when I watched the live stuff and when I like heard the songs. That was always my takeaway. And I have some vague recollection. They did an interview with the Inside Magazine. They did an interview with Pat Badger at 5150. And I, I thought that Pat made something in passing to say that like Eddie was asking Gary to sing different than he sang in extreme. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the things that I think is, you know, I think might've made it more difficult for Gary. It's funny. Gary's never really taught, right. Gary has been the good soldier and has never really talked about it. I mean, you know, he, he never, you never, you know, to his credit, he has refused. And I really, I've never met Gary before. I've, you know, I've had a couple of like back and forth on Twitter, just like, you know, kind of humorous things about like whatever, um, but I don't know him at all. But he's never been the guy who's been like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna monetize my relationship with Eddie Van Halen. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna monetize my time in Van Halen. Never. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to hear him talk about that. Like, yeah, just like, you know, like, oh, what was it like? You know, who was coaching you? I, you know, I always thought, and I, what I read and learned, I think it's probably true that Eddie really was the guy who produced Van Halen Three. Like, Mike Post was whatever my post input was and my post is a great songwriter and obviously incredibly successful television and film movie guy and music guy, very successful, legendary, but like I, that Eddie called the shots basically like Eddie was the guy who was determining what things were going to be like. So it'd be interesting to hear Gary talk about that. Like who basically who produced his vocals? Like Gary didn't just go in, I assume as a new guy and be like, this is the way I'm going to sing. You guys deal with it. I'm sure he was like looking for guidance. Like, what do you want? You know? Yeah. And I think maybe that's why when Gary said it would be probably would have been better if they went on tour and then recorded the album. Right. Then they would kind of get an idea that this is what I sound like on a Roth song. This is what I sound like on a Hagar song. This is what I actually would sound like on a Van Halen yeah. song. Maybe that's where he was going with hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think like, I mean, people have said like Van Halen three is basically a Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen solo album. And I think there's probably some, again, obviously all the guys played on it, whatever else, you know, there's other Alex, et cetera. But like, I think there was something to that, that Alex 
probably ceded a lot of control to his brother, like that this was like what Eddie was doing. And like Alex probably stepped back and let Eddie have more musical control over the record than maybe that had been in the past. That's my read on it, at least like a lot of stuff like, you know, like how many say I and like a lot of stuff, you know, and there's there's just the the last thing I'll say is like when I listen to Without You, which is my favorite song on the record, the solo is super long. And look, I've never been a guy mm-hmm. who's going to want Eddie Van Halen to shorten a solo, but I'm just like, it's too long. It's like for what it is, it's taking too long to get back to the chorus, like the hook, the core, the like the the pre-chorus and the chorus is a great hook. That's the hook of the song, and it's taking too long to get back to it. Like you're like lost in the middle of this long two-minute solo, which is a great solo. Don't get me wrong, but that's the thing where it's like there. I mean, you could name any number of people who could have produced the record successfully, probably could have worked as, as a producer, might have said, like, we need to cut this, like, because it's a single, right? It should be shorter. You got to get back to your chorus and keep the song going. It shouldn't be, a, it shouldn't be like a six minute, whatever it is, five and a half minute song, whatever, without you. It seems very long to me. There was an edit. I remember the, the MTV edit when it came out. It definitely, I think they cut that down. But the album definitely was. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, like that's the one I listened to. Like, I didn't again. I didn't listen on MTV. Like, I you know, I did a couple of times. But obviously, when I listened to it the most, I had a tape or whatever. And I just thought it's too long. It's just too, you know, because it's good again. This is your single, right? It's like, so yeah, it doesn't mean like look, light my fire is you know whatever however many long it was long, and that was a super successful. It's number one hit. They added that down too, but it was like still like people loved the long version of it. Doesn't mean it's not feasible to do that. But I just think there were some probably some decisions that were made fairly unilaterally by Eddie that if he had had a sounding board, you know, to say like, what do you think? Um, you know, you, whoever you have, like a, you have a Mutt Lang, you have any number of other people who could have done that or, you know, it's like, yeah. been like, ah, yeah, yeah. Like, any, like, no. right. Again, any, any guy who could have been up there or a woman who could have been up there with him was a producer or someone who has ears. And then like, yeah, I don't know about that. Like it might've been, it might've been a different deal. Um, you know, well, I mean, the thing we do know is that after Van Halen 3, it took a long time to put another record out. I mean, totally. That There could have been so much more music in between there. And I know there are a lot of, you know, challenges that Eddie was faced. And I'm, I'm hoping, like you, just that they continue to unearth some of these, whatever, whatever it is. Is it the wildlife? Is it... <laughs> Is it a remastered version, uh, especially for the diehard Van Halen fans out there? Yeah, and I think like I think that's the thing. There's all of this. I have to assume there's some sort of political stuff that goes on inside the band that Alex makes. Alex is the is the de facto CEO of Van Halen, but I suspect he consults with one you know one degree or the other the other guys, Mike and Sammy and Dave, and, and there's this. It, it may be more difficult than we know to kind of get things done. Not because like it can't like, again, this is just my supposition. Not that Alex couldn't be like, F you guys, I'm doing this. I mean, maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, but maybe it's just like to him. It's like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with toxic bullshit. Basically, excuse my language. Like basically I don't want to deal. I just like, we're not going to do this because we can't come to a consensus about X thing. So you know, maybe that's like you go to Sammy and it's just like, you're, you know, Sammy's like, yes, <laughs> you know, like, cause we know that Sammy's like, put it all out. So maybe that was the thing too. It's like, maybe that was just an easier starting point for, you know, instead of, in other words, instead of like trying to do the, you know, the, maybe the harder work of like kind of sitting down with Roth and saying like, what songs we want to put out from, from women and children first. And, it, you know, maybe Roth has very strong opinions about certain things. I, I don't know. Whereas Sammy might be much more like, it seems like Sammy would just be like, put it all out. I don't care. 
Like, I think Sammy's like confident enough of himself. He'd like, even if it was like a bad vocal, he'd be like, ah, it's okay. It's, you know, it was fun. I don't care. Like, I, I really don't think he would care that much. Well, what's to me, you mentioned Rotha, and I think it's fascinating. He's releasing all these studio tracks of Van Halen covers. And I know he's talked about he's unretired and he's going to be back out there. It sounds like he's just gearing up to show everybody what he's going to sound like when he's playing again. Yes, I don't know. I just, he just did. It's interesting. It looks like he just did that show in Vegas with the Steve Stevens. I, I saw some pictures. I was not totally able to see who did it, but it looked like there was Roth saying for like a must sort of private like corporate show. I guess again that could be fake news. There were pictures like you know he was with Steve and he's with. Billy Morrison, I think, is the other guy who's in the band with Steve, and they they looks like they played. It wasn't Ross solo band. It wasn't Alistrada and those guys. It did not look like that to me. They were out there with with Dave, and so um, you know whether that was sort of like, I, I again, I he's done a couple of those. I remember a couple of years ago. I can't remember what it was, but he did just a gigolo, and it was more of a kind of a corporate gig where he sang right, some of those. Right, so right, maybe he's coming back. I mean. The one thing that I do know is Wolfgang, he's going strong. He's got another album coming out. He's following what Eddie told him is, you know, rather fail with your own stuff than playing our own, our old stuff. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that's, that's the thing. It's, I think, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think the whole Wolfgang career is a whole different to- topic that could go on. We could talk about that for 30 right. minutes. But I think the thing I would say is that to his credit, you know, he hasn't gotten bogged down in the sort of like, I need to like, not replace my dad in Van Halen, but like hadn't gotten bogged down. And like, I need to go through all the music and I need to like, basically like, he's he's not trying to find closure by listening to his dad's music and deciding what to put out. Whenever that happens, it happens. I assume it will happen someday that he said it will. I, I believe it. I believe he will. But you know, he's like, I want to do my own thing right now. And like, he's out there having a good time and, and with his band. And, you know, he's basically, you know, there's no point in, um, I, I assume he thinks there's not a point right now for him to sit there and just sort of have to deal with the emotions of that, how difficult that would be to sort of like look through mm-hmm. all his dad's tapes and listen to all his dad's music and hear his dad talking on the tapes, no doubt, right. like joking around with the guys in the band. I mean, that'd be probably be, you know, if you're not ready for that, that would probably be a very painful thing to do. So he's, you know, he's off doing great with his own stuff. And I, I, I back his, you know, stuff 100%. And even like, you know, it's it's been wonderful to see him be on these big tours too, to get, you know, get their recognition we went out with guns and roses and did some of these bigger these bigger i think they're doing mm-hmm. def leppard this summer right at wembley i think i think right it's like it's going to be great so good for those guys and good for all the guys in the band they all seem to be really good guys and frank and the rest of them they seem to be really really just solid dudes who want to play music with wolf and you know go 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 you know it's great yeah van halen lives on so greg 100 100 it was great having you on again i feel like we could do like an epic part series and probably break down <laughs> each van halen album track by track and even wolfgangs but it's it's always a pleasure catching up with you and i just i can just feel the I don't know, spirit of van halen in, in you and just like eddie said if you miss me just push play 100 percent. i just really yeah I, you know we all miss them right it's just like it's weird i don't like to say that online because it's kind of seems like cliche to like people actually knew him and like work with his family and stuff like i miss him like you know you know uh, i didn't know the guy but yeah, I mean, we all, you know, obviously wish he was here and was still giving us music or just around, like I said, or just talking and, you know, that would be a different world. But it's a good reminder, you know, life is short and bad things happen to people and it's just part of it. So, hey, Mark, I appreciate it. It was a really enjoyable conversation. Hit me up anytime. Happy to talk Van Halen or anything else. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> talk to you soon.
Take care. Yep. Bye now. All right, Ray. So Greg, really, we got into it. I mean, we talked about a lot about Van Halen 3, which to me, when it came out, I was so excited. I know that everyone doesn't think much about Van Halen 3. There's been some interviews recently with Gary Sharon about the music, and he always thought, if I had more time, even the next album, he was saying recently that there is a whole Van Halen 3 second album that was almost completed. He says basically there are you know varying tracks. Some tracks are almost complete, maybe three or four of them, and there was a handful that were still had some work to do. So they were almost going to release another album. I didn't think Van Halen 3, as much as everyone jumps on it, sure, Eddie Van Halen sang vocals on one <laughs> track, but outside of that, I thought the the effort was definitely Van Halen. Yeah, I I still remember it, buying it fondly. I, I still remember bringing it home. And I mean, when I hit once, I was transfixed. You know, that's still among my favorite Van Halen songs ever. And it, I mean, we've talked about before, I think, the the, the differences, the clearly stylistic differences between the David era and the Sammy era and the Gary era, and they're there, but it's still, as you said, it was, it was, it sounded like Van Halen. It was, uh, it was a Van Halen record. It had, it had Eddie's feel to it. It had the band's feel to it. It had the Gary's stylings in it, but um, yeah, that's interesting. They had a, a, it's like a Van Halen pie, right? You know, 3.14 or something like that. This, this extra Van Halen three that they had. Yeah, maybe that's what they're going to call it. And there has been some leaks out there. If you look it up, there's one song. I think it's called That's Why I Love You is one of the songs that's out there. And that's probably the one of the finished tracks that made it out the door. And people are like, well, you're sure that wasn't something left over from the first sessions? Nobody knows. Even Gary won't say what was out there. But Van Halen 3 was, that was a time period where... If you think about it, after Van Halen 3, the next album wasn't until A Different Kind of Truth. And that that didn't come out to 2012. So there probably is a lot of music out there that everyone's hoping that's going to come out. But as Wolfgang said, don't hold your breath. <laughs> there's, there's not going to be many unreleased tracks that are going to come out. Yeah, I think, it, again, back to your your, your point you, you mentioned earlier, it's Van Halen appears to be done. And, they you know, they've... They, they, they took a while to, to do anything new and then said, well, this is it. Yeah. And you, know, you think about that right now. I've got a title title that's up there. And surprise, surprise, there's a David Lee Roth track in there. And it's stand up. So there's four tracks. And what's interesting about this is if you look at the four tracks, you've got stand up by david lee roth then you've got stand up but in parentheses kick love into motion which was that def leppard track after that you've got the tune from ludicrous which you may remember it actually was a number one hit 20 years ago the last song is it's called stand up and it's by cynthia Erebo. Those are the four songs that I found that I thought were, were relevant. 
for me, Ray, I'm leaning toward one song. And I, I listened through them all, and it was a really, really hard choice because you know me. I typically pick the song that is the, the mm -hmm. dance tune. What do you think I picked, Ray? Um, well, first of all, you're dead on with Ludacris. It was uh, 20 years ago this fall, so it was uh, 2003. Um, what do I think you picked? Yeah. I I don't know. I think your, your Van Halen won out, and you picked uh, David Lee Roth. I did. Did? I did pick the song. It's it's because of the bass riff. I I liked the Def Leppard song. Yep. I still listen to that one too. So it's it's pretty much a neck and neck tie between those two. But if you had to arm wrestle me, I always have a a weakness to that that David Lee Roth era of that time period. Uh, I'm I'm in the exact same spot. I've been thinking about this since I saw it, and I uh, I like. Both of those songs, the Def Leppard song, which, you know, remember our old thing about that song. If you take the the first letter of each word for that song and put it backwards, you get Milk Us. I, re, I, I like that song, and I, I really like the David Lee Roth song. It's been hard to pick it, but I think, uh, yeah, the David Lee Roth one, in, Inches Ahead. I mean, I actually sing that song regularly, and I suppose that's got to break the tie, if anything. So um, That's amazing. I, yeah, I actually, not not the whole thing, but, you know, I'll, I'll be like, you know, I'll tell my kids like, stand up, stand up. The more you do it, the less you fall down. You know, I'll say that. To, I'll, I'll say that like all the time. So I got to go David Lee Roth too. So I, I totally get you. Yeah. It was hard because I think it's the guitar solo that Vi does. I think that's what gets me with that song too. Cause it, it does build to that point. And then Vi takes off and he always has guitar solos. that I don't understand what he's doing. I, I think because he was trained or came from the Frank Zappa school of music. Mm -hmm. Every time he gets a guitar solo, it's, I can't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a circus or something on a guitar. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. Cause remember he joined white snake there. Yep. That was uh, the slip of the tongue album. And there was something about his guitar playing on full for your love. And I know that was a remake from an older white snake album but once again you know you you can instantly hear it's him on that guitar yeah that's the thing i mean that's it you, you mentioned with white snake and and with you know david lee roth etc he he's got a distinctive style i mean right back to you know we talked about with we've talked about with eddie right eddie van halen it's a certain guitarist you know their style and steve Vai is right there yeah i mean you think about there's some interesting guitar players that came out of that era and a lot of people say you know oh you know they were eddie clones but i think there was just something about and you said that was kind of that that summer uh was that the summer 88 that was yeah, the year the year that uh stand up came out yeah so there was something about that era where that was the music everybody had a guitar solo it was that's what you did. So you had to stand out. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, it was in Eddie Clone. Sure, there could have been some of that. But I really think people like C.C. DeVille and you go down the list of all the guitarists of that time, they were trying to to come up with that sound. As soon as you hear the guitar, you knew it was them. Yeah, yeah. There was. that. I think you're exactly right. That, that was the era of, like, uh, big guitars, right? And you know, not just like the the hair metal bands and stuff, although that was a big part of it. But, you know, you think 
you said uh, Vito Brada comes to mind as well, right? So um, that was there was a there was a and you know that was the era where you could you could buy like these these train these training videos right to learn how to play guitar like hair metal bands and there are all kinds of guys across the country doing that you know and and women too but i mean it was marketed toward men and so there was a there was a whole era there of your i think you're right of these these guitar like you know you're gonna do the the arpeggios and go up the go up the scale and everything else and that was a big thing and and by like the you know, you get to about 93, 94, and that's really kind of worn out. And, you know, grunge has come along and it's a whole different thing. Yeah, it just kind of falls off. And that's why I thought it was hard for me to vote against Def Leppard, because that was that was like 93. That was that was going against the grain of getting on the top 40 with the song Stand Up in 1993. I mean, that was that was grunge. Like It was it was leaking out of every speaker. And then you get this Def Leppard, and they then then they had a follow up with what was like "Miss You in a Heartbeat" somewhere around. Yeah, that time was that, well, they had uh, uh, "Do You Want to Get Rocked," and then and then um, Adrenalized. Yeah, Adrenalized the album, yeah. and then um, "Have You Ever Needed Someone So Bad?" You know, it was like came out ninety two to ninety three to ninety four, and and you know, and then yeah, they had "Miss You in a Heartbeat" came out later, and you know, Def Leppard was one that kind of hung on a little bit, and partly because I think they had ascended to a, a bit higher of a cultural level than a lot of the other bands. And so I think they were able to sustain it for a few more years, but you know, by the mid nineties, even, even they were, you know, waning. Well, this has been good to talk about this. I hope you enjoyed getting some closure on, you know, Eddie Van Halen. And as you continue support Wolfgang, he's out there, he's got a new album coming out. I think it's just as, going to be as potent as the last one and if you're following tunes mate i'm just always amazed how much more there is that we can surface from the 80s and go back 25 years i saw casey and jojo up there i mean that was a huge hit 25 years ago i mean you know that's only gonna that's got like little only uh, only a year and a half left and then we're gonna be out of the 90s there and um so it's kind of weird to think of those, some of those songs like uh, just before that we had um, uh, getting jiggy with it and my heart will go on. The idea that those are 25 years old already. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, we got all the great stuff going on on tunes made and uh, had a number of TV themes lately and, you know, just keeping it going. Yeah. Well, follow our blog, subscribe to our podcast and from everyone here at tunes mate, I'm Mark. And I'm right. We will see you next time.